Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. Last uh, December, there was an interesting conversation on Lit Hub, where Keenon also resides with one of America's most talented and revered young writers, Allegra Hyde. Uh, she was interviewed about addressing steps to solve uh, the climate change crisis uh, in her new novel. Her new novel, As It Happens, is out uh, this week, and it was out yesterday, The Last Catastrophe, a series of short stories on the environment. And I'm thrilled that Allegra is joining us now. She's joining us from uh, Oberlin, Ohio, where she lives and teaches and writes, of course. Um, Allegra, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Uh, we've done many shows on Keen on, on the, the global crisis of um, the environment, of global warming, mostly with nonfiction writers, scientists, um, political scientists, economists, occasionally with, with fiction writers like yourself. And I'm curious what you think as a, as a fiction writer, as a creative, you bring to this conversation, this debate, which nonfiction writers perhaps might struggle with. Sure. I think fiction is a space for imagination. And fiction writers uh, who are engaging with climate change um, oftentimes use their stories and novels as a space to imagine both worst case scenarios. Um, so how climate change might escalate and therefore why we should be really uh, taking steps to mitigate the crisis. And then also um, more and more um, climate fiction writers have been using fiction to imagine um, alternate possibilities um, and how to consider how might we um, rebuild society, reinvent our value systems, our social structures to, again, um, tackle this problem. You're the author of two previous books before the last catastrophe, uh, and I'm going to butcher this name, Eulotheria. Um, and yeah. Eleutheria, it runs with diphtheria. Okay, Eleutheria, I apologize. And of this new world, you, you mentioned uh, cl uh, fiction climate writers. Do you consider yourself... Um, a fiction climate writer? Is that how you would define your work? Well, to be honest, I am a little wary of, of labels and I don't want to get boxed in as only a, a climate writer or a cli-fi writer, as some people say. But my work oftentimes does um, touch on climate change and uh, engage with it. And so it's a, it's a mode that I write in and it's certainly just a reality of our world that I bring to bring to my fiction. I mean, you could, of course, focus on other issues, inequality, race, identity, sexuality, politics, history, the future. Why do you choose this subject? Has it always been one that you felt very strongly about? Yeah, I, I, I'm from New Hampshire and I grew up out in the woods, I would say. So I'm someone who's always been um, very connected to the natural world, very attuned to what's going on, you know, growing up in New Hampshire, if there was an ice storm and it, it knocked out our, our power, we, um, we had to kind of deal with that. And there wasn't a, an immediate way to, um, 
live. So I was very aware of kind of the, the effects of the natural world and the consequences that um, escalating disasters might have for people. And I think that that naturally has uh, shown up in my creative work. Do you remember the first moment when you realized that there was a, a crisis or you observed changes in the weather or in the environment, perhaps in New Hampshire, which woke you up to what was going on? I did have a, uh, a kind of epiphanic moment um, when I was seven years old and I was doing some kind of, I don't know, children's program and they were talking about um, garbage and the fact that uh, humans create a lot of garbage and um, it's, there's not an obvious place to put it. Um, and they asked us children, where do you think we should put this garbage? And they had us point on a map where we thought we should put it. And I was seven years old. I pointed, um, I don't know, to Poughkeepsie, uh, Pennsylvania or something. And people, the person leading the program uh, noted that there were people there. You can't just put garbage. Um, and so then I pointed to Antarctica and the person noted, well, you're going you're gonna to put the garbage with the penguins. And um, it became really clear to me in that moment as a seven-year-old that um, our, our human systems were broken if we were creating waste and um, uh, we didn't have a system for dealing with it. And I think from that point on, I've really held on to um, that sense of uh, 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 of flaws within our, our 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 social systems now, and the need to reinvent them so that we have sustainable um, uh, sustainable society. You are, of course, I mean, all too familiar with uh, Richard Powers' great novel *Bewilderment*, which is again, I don't want to box him in, but in some ways, a climate fictional book about childhood and um, and how. A, a child looks at the world. Do you think that children are able to see what's happening around us in, a, in an odd way better than adults? That seems to be one of the ideas in Power's Bewilderment in some of his other books. Yeah, I think absolutely. Children have um, an ability to see, uh, see truth oftentimes because they haven't been um, acculturated uh, the way grown-ups have they um, they bring kind of pure value systems oftentimes. And I think that they're worth listening to and, and learning from for that reason. Let's get to The Last Catastrophe, this new book uh, by uh, Allegra Hyde. Uh, Allegra, I, I assume that there's an element of, of irony, of humor in this, in this title. Is that fair? Yeah, I wanted the title to be um, a phrase that could be read in multiple ways. Um, on one hand, we could read it as the last catastrophe, as in the, the catastrophe that's just happened. And it's, it's um, one of many that just keep occurring. We might also read it as the, the final catastrophe. And um, I think that that uh, dimensionality around the title is hopefully reflected in the stories themselves, which which uh, engage with despair and get into some really heavy material, but that are also trying to show um, hope and possibility and um, um, an opportunity. Form, of course, is always important, particularly for artists like yourself. You chose the form of the short story rather than the novel for this book. Does that reflect in some ways the subject of, of, of the book? this last catastrophe, this climate crisis? 
I love short stories because you can explore a lot of ideas really quickly. Um, and even though my my first novel, Eleutheria, is is certainly um, bursting full of ideas, um, in a in a short story you can you can just set up a, a really specific situation, um, dig into the the what if of a speculative question in particular, um, and then and then move on once you've uh, quickly explored that idea. And so within this collection. Um, I'm talking about everything from uh, endangerment uh, and extinction to um, uh, um, vegan zombies. It's uh, and um, kind of other other just weird um, concepts. I can I can talk about the specific stories themselves if you'd like me to, but um, I I will pause there. Well, let's get on to those. Um, the book is describes itself as as, as as discussing how humanity grapples in a world transformed by climate change. Is it a polemic? Is there a, a, a programmatic element? Um, I mean, I always try to approach um, material in a, a non-didactic way and to um, a, approach um, scenarios and situations from a place of of non-judgment and to let my characters to grapple in that sense, rather than to um, write a, um, a, a treatise on absolute kind of what I think, because when it comes to something like the climate crisis, moral ambiguity is uh, kind of the, the, uh, the reality that we're in. There's, um, off, there's, a, there's so many hard choices and there's so many, um, it's so hard to kind of pin down blame and responsibility oftentimes. So um, I, I think that uh, maybe fiction in particular is a great space for wrestling with that ambiguity. The book or the stories take place mostly in the United States. Obviously, the United States is particularly controversial when it comes to climate politics, to international agreements. Is this mostly written for an American audience? Um, I would say that it, I, I welcome readers from any any place in the world, but I think it is a collection that is speaking to Americans in particular, and that is um, and really engaging with American culture and um, aspects of American history, even uh, as it looks towards the future and um, sets stories in the near future. What is it about America, Allegra, that has made it such a standout in a, in a negative sense when it comes to climate politics and climate issues, why they've resisted signing international accords, while they um, overproduce much of the world's pollution? Is it somehow rooted in the history, the origins, the foundations of the country? I probably, I think that um, folks... Uh, from Europe came to the American continent um, with this idea that there was a kind of infinite possibility uh, for all of them as, as individuals to, to make their own way. And this idea of the American dream and of manifest destiny and of um, kind of endless growth and expansion persists today, um, along with this ethos of individualism. Um, and that uh, that mentality um, isn't um, 
uh, is not a mentality that is helpful when it comes to making societal changes to address climate change. If we always are prioritizing growth and individual consumption and um, uh, expansion, we are, we're never going to um, resolve this crisis. We're just going to make it worse and worse. And unfortunately, um, America is uh, America and Americans are, are loath to give it up. There is, of course, also the country's love affair with the motor car, big country, mm -hmm. lots of roads, um, and an ambivalence, often a hostility to other forms of, of public transportation. One of your stories uh, imagines a vast caravan of RVs roaming the United States. I don't want you to give away. I mean, not that, of course, your your short stories are probably defined by their 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 beginnings and endings. But perhaps you might talk about that that story and 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 this ongoing and and perhaps catastrophic American love affair with with cars. Sure. So that story it's called Mobilization, and it's about a herd of um, RVs that is roaming around um, America, kind of doing what they please, um, not. Uh, not really taking responsibility for um, any any particular place. And they feel that they can kind of keep doing that infinite, infinitely um, and they can live this, quote unquote, free um, existence. Uh, however, um, just as in the real world, um, eventually they hit a crisis around um, fueling their vehicles. And the story in a way can be read as a, a kind of allegory for where we're headed with our um, addiction to fossil fuels. And um, what I, I, I hoped to kind of show in that, in that story and in some of my other stories is how we, we've created these really, uh, these ephemeral kind of utopias. Um, and when it comes to uh, driving in America, there's this um, kind of mirage of a utopia uh, when it comes to access to vehicles and and mobility and transportation, um, but it's it's uh, it's it's not going to last. It can't last. And if unless we kind of change our our value systems, change our transportation systems, we're um, we're not going to like where we're headed. And that's a metaphor: not liking where we're headed, given our addiction to cars. Is that really realistic, though, um, Allegra? We've had so many shows about America trying to transform itself into Denmark. I always pick on Denmark because they're an easy target and I don't know any Danes. Uh, and I don't suppose they'll come and revenge bomb me or something. But in all seriousness, can America really reinvent itself? Or, or can this be done in a more innovative way? We've had a number of shows with reasonably optimistic entrepreneurs, scientists, technologists who believe now that we do indeed have the technology to fix this problem and it can be done through the market. How, how would you respond to, to people like that? Well, I think that at, at the end of the day, um, making a, a massive change on that scale is going to involve um, a coalition between many forces. It's going to be market-based. It's also going to be um, coming from a, a kind of uh, community-based grassroots direction. It's going to be coming from um, uh, other kind of coalitions of, of environmental 
advocates and, and government organizations. And so I, I think it has to be uh, um, everyone finding, a, finding common ground. Is this the generational issue you teach at Oberlin? So you have um, daily interactions with uh, younger people. I've got a couple of kids, one of whom is majoring in environmental science at Bryn Mawr. In your mind, is this the issue that's defining a generation? And are you as a writer, are you perhaps in some ways writing for that younger generation? Um, I think that climate change is also a, a product of so many other issues. It's a product of colonialism. It's a product of patriarchy. It's a, it's a, a product of uh, just longstanding systems of oppression. Um, and in, so on one hand, yes, it is a, um, a, a really uh, prominent issue. And maybe it is the, the, the issue of a generation, but it, um, it's connected to, to so much else, which we're, we're also constantly grappling with. Um, and in terms of who I'm writing to, um, I'm, I, I would hope that uh, there would be something um, in the collection uh, for everyone. Um, and Like one of those boxes yeah. of chocolates. Totally. Uh, but um, yeah, I guess, you know, I'll take whatever reader I can get. Well, I think you're going to get a lot of readers. Um, another of your story uh, is... Uh, about a president who proposes bulldozing all the Great Lakes into one big lake, obviously satirical, <laughs> not in its not not ideal or, or, or serious, uh, but it touches on the issue of politics. Joe Biden seems to be a much better president for the environment than certainly Donald Trump. Um, mm -hmm. What's your role? What's your view of the role of? politics and politicians and government and regulation in this crisis in the last catastrophe? Um, I think government regulation is absolutely essential. I think that so many of our environmental issues are, are not going to be solved by uh, individuals um, using reusable bags. It's going to be governments um, taxing the wealthy and it's going to be government setting limits um, and restrictions on fossil fuel production and investing in green technology, transportation. And I think that's, uh, that's what we need. Um, I, I love that you mentioned um, One Big Lake, uh, though, because I think that speaks to the, the emphasis um, or interest that the collection has on speculative politics. Um, and uh, that's something that I'm uh, I'm really interested in as a as a fiction writer because again, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, fiction is a space for um, imagination, and we can um, kind of uh, use fiction to explore different political modalities and consider, you know, maybe we we want to restructure our political frameworks, our our political methodologies, and we could if we wanted to. Um, enough of us. What's your what's your um, fashion, shall we say? What's your what your habit in terms of writing short stories? Do you tend to put them away for a while, or do you tend to begin and finish them and then move on to the next? 
Um, when I'm writing a, a short story, usually I start with um, a question, maybe asking um, uh, uh, what if artists were, say, endangered like animals and then protected in zoos like animals. And then um, I, uh, I, I usually kind of draft out a response. I try to really pay attention to voice in my early drafts. Um, and then it, it kind of depends on what else I, I have going on. But once um, uh, once I've got that first draft down, then um, I, I usually revise obsessively, get feedback from outside readers and um, and do that until the, the piece is cohesive and polished. You're also very interested in technology. Um, you believe that the future is a click away. You <laughs> right that ironically uh one of your other stories imagines the future uh of a, of a young woman on a spaceship bonding with her ai warden while trying to avoid an arranged marriage uh, today as it happens elon musk who i don't think is a great hero for most environmentalists or most technologists actually has signed a letter with a, a number of other tech leaders calling for a pause on what they call the dangerous race to make AI as advanced as humans. How do you see the AI staff, GPT-4, generative AI, playing into the climate issue? I think that the danger with AI is uh, the danger of human beings um, abdicating agency and, and responsibility in their decision-making as individuals and, and, and communities. And I am, what, what worries me is in many ways our, um, our eagerness to care, to believe that these computer systems are, are smarter than us or could do things better than us. I think that that's actually what's most pernicious and, um, the thinking behind my story, The Future is a Click Away, um, which describes a, a community where um, everybody is so um, uh, kind of treats this algorithm like a deity. And um, the algorithm in that story um, is basically in a, a slight exaggeration of today's um, targeted marketing, where uh, in this case, the algorithm sends people um, consumer goods that it it believes that they need um, before that they've ever um, clicked purchase. So it's kind of taking that creepy experience maybe you've had of seeing ads for something that you um, talked about with a friend or were even just thinking about that the um, uh, uh, shopping algorithms have figured out you might want. Um, and the this particular community is basically totally abdicating um, their responsibility around uh, decision-making um, and um, paying for everything that the algorithm is sending them. Um, and I, I wanted to show how um, this community is kind of giving into a cult of convenience in a way. And again, um, maybe a cult of um, endless consumption and, and expansion. And that's where it really intersects with the, the climate crisis, because if we're going to... Um, uh, resolve it at all or mitigate the worst possibilities, we need to um, change our kind of value systems around um, consumption. And we need to do that as um, human beings, not as um, 
algorithms that are designed to get people to buy and consume as much as possible. Allegra, how do we listen or indeed talk to nature, to other species, to the trees, to the plants, to the water? We've done a number of shows on language, indeed one with my friend Karen Backer, a, a, a biologist and historian um, in, in Canada who believes we're on the verge of technologies which will allow us to quite literally converse with the trees. If we can, what should we say? Or perhaps more importantly, what should we listen for? I'm of the belief that um, plants and animals are, are talking to us all the time. And it's a matter of us maybe listening and and truly um, paying attention. And I think um, they're just not speaking in a uh, in, in, uh, human human language. But, you know, we can we can look around and we can see, um, you know, plants blooming when they normally don't due to kind of weird weather patterns or animals showing up where they're not supposed to be or behaving um, in a particular way. And I think all around the world, um, plants and animals and ecosystems are screaming out to us, telling us that um, things are going wrong. And um, this is something that, again, the, the collection's trying to touch on, which is something that's been called global weirding, which is another way of thinking about global warming that really emphasizes um, the fact that all of these um, natural systems are, are getting thrown out of whack and um, that's that's affecting um, nature. And that's uh, uh, kind of by extension, of course, because we're animals too, that's affecting us as people. Do you think we should be willing to sacrifice something? Um, in the Bible, there was the story of Moses, I I think it was Moses, or, or perhaps Abraham being asked to sacrifice his eldest son. Should we perhaps be asked to sacrifice language or maybe writers should sacrifice language? That's a, a really interesting question. And I'm, I'm not sure about um, sacrificing language. I'll have to think about it. But I, I do wonder if um, emphasizing sacrifices. Uh, a little too puritanical and isn't going to actually um, move us towards long-term term change. Um, I wonder if it's more useful to think about um, uh, transformation and to also think about how um, moving towards a, a kind of a greener lifestyle doesn't ne necessarily mean needing to um, lose things, give things up. It can also mean gaining things, you know, de-escalating our economy can mean that all of us have a lot more free time and maybe we only work three days a week. That seems like a win to me. Well, finally, Allegra, you talked about agency earlier. People are going to be watching and listening, I'm sure, or I hope at least they buy your new collection, uh, The Last Catastrophe. Uh, what, in addition to buying that book, of course, the, the most important manifestation of agency, at least from the point of view of a writer, um, what should people be doing? You I think this about, is, yeah. Um, you know, the old story, you know, go out and buy a, an electric car or, or, or turn your lights off. Uh, but, but is there another way of thinking about this, perhaps a more meta, more profound way of, 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 of manifesting our, our agency as human beings uh, and addressing what you call the, our last catastrophe? 
Sure, I can I can offer up my my existential pitch, which is that um, in order to move towards a more sustainable future, I think we have to believe that a more sustainable future is possible, and um, that can seem really um, intangible, and maybe it can seem like something that won't ultimately have an impact. But I think so many of us um, are we've already kind of convinced ourselves that. Um, there's there's no hope. Um, there's no possibility of changing. But human civilization has evolved and changed um, dramatically many times through history, and I think we we absolutely have the capacity to do it again. So that is that's my that's my my pitch.